giving you uh, sermon outlines. The ushers do have the sermon outlines, right? Ushers need to have sermon outlines. Uh, Mark, there should be a stack of sermon outlines back there someplace. I don't know where they hid them. Check in the back room. I made 200 of them. I know I have them. Oh, sorry, sorry. Somebody folded them and stuck them in the bulletin without me knowing it. Okay, sorry about that. (laughs) So much, you guys are on the ball. Okay. Okay, hold it. We still need some up here. Who doesn't have one? Okay, Mark, you still got work to do. They must have stuck them in between the services because I didn't know that. Early service, we had to hand them out. This is the last Sunday of the year, and either on the last Sunday of the year or the first Sunday of the year, uh, I, for 27 years now, have challenged people to be in the Word of God on a regular basis Um, on their own. And uh, that is what I'm trying to do this morning also. Is it on now? Okay. That's what I'm attempting to do this morning also. Challenge you to be in the Word of God on a regular basis for yourself. I don't really care how you do it. In your bulletin is a sheet that will give you an outline to follow. If you would like to read the Bible through in three years, there's an outline. And every day it will tell you how many chapters you have to read to stay on pace. If you'd like to read, take a big challenge, read the Bible through in a year. I've done it six or seven times myself, read the Bible through in a year. I haven't done it for a while. Um, many years ago, I would challenge the congregation to read the Bible through every year. I found out that by end of January, the vast majority of the people quit because they missed a day or two and figured they could never catch up, and so they quit. So I divided it into three. This year, I'm challenging you to read the first half of the Old Testament, uh, and then next year, etc. But some of you use Our Daily Bread. You want to do that, uh, and there's a passage in there to read, that's fine. If you have another way to be in the Bible on a regular basis and keep you on track, I simply want to encourage you. There are others that kind of randomly do it. That's a little scary because random usually means you don't hold yourself accountable. But I really encourage you to be in the Bible for yourself. We live in a country, and our culture, and our society, and our churches are unfortunately biblically illiterate. And I am not trying to put people down. I'm just saying that most people today simply do not know what the Bible says. I've seen it in my own ministry. It used to be when I first started uh, 20-some years ago that if I was counseling with somebody or witnessing to somebody, I'd say, you remember Solomon in the Old Testament or Saul or David and what happened here? And they would understand that because they had been to Sunday school. They had heard the Old Testament stories. They knew the accounts from the Old Testament. And I was able to build on that. Today, that's no longer true. People just look at me like, what are you talking about? And I hope that you will not be those people that you will have a background. 
that you will have a basis not only to build your spiritual life on, but your life on. And then you'll be able to interpret and see the New Testament for exactly what it is. Remember, if you think, well, we live in the church, we don't need the Old Testament, you are absolutely wrong. Go through the New Testament the next time you're in there and find out how many times they allude to and quote from the Old Testament. And if you don't know the background and the context from the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't make a lot of sense. In fact, it's very hard to understand the New Testament if you don't know the basis of the Old Testament. And that's why I have no problem challenging people to read the Old Testament. Because it is indeed the foundation and the basis for the New Testament. In fact, is the New Testament is the culmination. The focus of the Old Testament is what Christ has done and is recorded for us in the New Testament. Of course, it goes from there to how we're to act in the church. And then, of course, to the book of Revelation, to what is going to happen in the future. But I just want to challenge you. To be in the Bible on a regular basis on your own. Coming to church is great. Listening to sermons and Bible study teachers and all those things. That's all good stuff. But being in it for yourself, there is no substitute. So I just want to challenge you in that way. This morning, uh, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of the service. And you go, okay, so you've got this outline. doesn't look like anything of what would be preparing us for this. I beg to disagree. I think you'll understand by the time I'm done. But let's look at what this says. And this uh, is challenging you specifically starting in Genesis through the book of Esther. Uh, You could do this, and I will in the future do this for the rest of the Bible. But uh, this year, obviously, Genesis through Esther. First of all, a couple of major points. Overall things that you need to know. The first statement on your list, and we're now on the outline that's in front of you, it has a statement there. A man by the name of Cooper wrote this originally, uh, and it just makes sense, and that's why I'm basically quoting him here. When the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. In other words, when you read the Bible, don't do as the History Channel does. says, there are secrets there, and there's conspiracies there. You're not looking for secrets and you're not looking for conspiracies. You're looking for the truth. And God says what he means and means what he says. And most of the Bible is simply straightforward reading. Are there word pictures? Are there those types of things, uh, analogies? Are there that type of thing? The answer is, of course there are. But it's very clear when figurative language is used. If you're reading the Psalms, you're going to find a lot of figurative language because it's poetry. And poetry, by its very nature, uses figurative language. Again, that'll come in the next one when we look at the context. So when the plain sense makes common sense, don't look for some hidden meaning. Therefore, take every word as primary, ordinary Usual, literal meaning. In other words, if a word means something, that's what it means in the Bible. If you don't know what it means, look it up. Unless the context is something different. 
For example, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic, and I don't use words like that and neither do you, and uh, somehow my parentheses came out of there, but that means self-evident. And fundamental truth indicate clearly otherwise. In other words, if you're reading something and you go, I think it means this. But you know there are other absolutely clear passages that you already understand that say something diametrically opposed to that. You go, I better look at this again. Because the Bible does not contradict itself. I did not say that the Bible was always easy to read, nor easy to understand, or easy to apply to your life. The opposite is true. There are things that are absolutely crystal clear and and as simple as can be. And there are things that are rather difficult. Remember, we're talking about concepts like eternity and God and salvation and spiritual life. Those are not easy concepts. And so there will be hard things. Even the Apostle Peter said of the Apostle Paul, he wrote things that are hard to understand. So... Even the apostles who wrote the Bible understand that not all of it's just plain, easy reading. But don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. That's the whole point here. Number two, interpret in the context. My favorite saying is in quotes there, a text without a context is a pretext. Even in your own personal life, I'm married 40 years. You know what? My wife and I, making a statement to each other, can totally just go right past each other. Now, I know none of you would ever do that in your lives. But if you take a statement out of context, it can mean something completely different. I mean, I literally have many times said to my wife, Faye, she thinks we're disagreeing. I'm like, Faye, we're saying the same thing. And we've just gone right past each other because you didn't put it in the context. So keep it in mind when you read the Bible. The Bible is not written in a vacuum. It's written with verses before it and verses after it. It's written in a book of the Bible. That's why the whole last part of this sermon is looking at these books of the Bible and saying, what is the main reason it was written? Why do we have it included in the Bible? And when you have that in your mind, it helps you to understand how this fits. That's important. Let's continue on. Sometimes, and I've already mentioned this, there are hard passages. You go, I don't remember that from before. What do I do with that? Here's what you do, and I'm just going to read it. Interpret hard and obscure passages in the light of the clear ones. From the easy to the hard, from the known to the unknown. So as you're reading the Bible through this year ahead, you come to something, you go, I don't understand that. Don't stop reading. Keep reading. The Bible is very good at interpreting those hard things. Sometimes right in the very same verse. Sometimes in the chapter. Sometimes in the book. And sometimes way later. And you, But here's what you don't do. You go, I don't understand this. I'm quitting. Keep reading. One more thing, and this is not a part of this, but this is thrown in for free. When you get to those things, and I'm I'm going to tell you, the first few times I started to read the Bible, and many people have told me the same thing, they got to the point, they're like, hey, this is interesting. Then they got to a list of begots, and -and so-and-so begot, so-and-so, and and -and -and so-and-so, and went on, and they just quit. They go, this is boring. It doesn't make any sense. Why in the world is it in the Bible? I can tell you 
almost 40 years ago when I first became a Christian, those things made no sense, and I'm wondering why they were there also. Now that I've studied the Bible for a while, I understand why they're there. It makes sense. It helps to understand the rest of the Bible. But it may not make sense. If this is the first time you're attempting to read the Bible through, you're going to get to those passages. Just keep reading. By the way, it is not sacrilegious to skim read when you get to those. Next year, it'll make a little more sense. And the year after that, a little more sense. If you're growing as a Christian. So keep that in mind. There are places you're just going to go shake your head and go, I don't, I don't understand this. Keep reading. Because you'll get to things that you understand and then it'll start making a context. It'll start making some sense. That's what I want to encourage you. Number four, I believe it is. Interpret as progressive revelation. I already mentioned this. It's the principle that we use when we teach our children to play with blocks. If you're going to build a tower, you don't start with one on the bottom and just go straight up. You, you build a wide base, almost like a pyramid. That's how the Word of God is given to us. There is a basis, and then upon that basis, the next layer is placed, and the next layer is placed, and the next layer is placed. We don't have the gospel the story of Jesus in the beginning of the Bible. We have it at the proper place. Those that work with tribal peoples, and we support a number of those folks, they start by teaching the Old Testament. They don't give the gospel because people put this together with their pagan uh, ritual and they have a mess. But they teach who God is, what God has done, the Old Testament stories, and they build to... The focus, and the focus, of course, is Jesus Christ. Do the same thing as you're studying the Bible. Recognize that the Old Testament actually points us to Christ. I'll I'll get there in a moment. But it's progressive revelation. He didn't give us everything all at once. The Bible was written over a period of approximately 1,500 years, and it was given in a progressive way. One uh, revelation building on the last. One more thing. Interpret it as dispensational. It's kind of the same as that, but it simply means this. God has dealt with people in a different way at different times. It's not different ways of salvation. The only way you can be saved is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way of salvation. But God has dealt with people in different ways over the years. And that's all that it means. It's nothing spooky or mystical. It's simply this. Not everything is the same. For example, God does not deal with us today in the same way that he dealt with Adam and Eve when they were in the Garden of Eden. In fact is, in the last part of Adam and Eve's life, he dealt with them differently than he did when they were in the Garden. Because something had changed and God is dealing in a different way. We'll look at that in a few moments. Keep that in mind. And one of the biggest things that you need to understand is Israel and the church are separate groups of people. Israel is and will always be God's chosen nation and God's chosen people. The church is exactly what it is called out people who have trusted Christ in a very specific time frame. So far, about 2,000 years. How long it goes, we don't know, but it will end with the rapture. And 
got to go back to dealing in a different way. We know that. We're not going to deal with all of that today. The divisions of the book from Genesis to Esther are two main divisions given to us by the Jewish people. The law and the prophets, they would say it, the law and history. The law is simply God giving the Jews an external restraint of how to look at life. It includes the Ten Commandments, but it's way more than the Ten Commandments. And the history, the history of the Jewish people. And you go, so why would we be reading the Old Testament, which is about the Jews? Because of what the New Testament says. Remember, I said it builds on a base. When you get to Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it says this. That all of these things that were written in the past were written for our instruction, for our perseverance, for our encouragement that we might have hope. So when you read the Old Testament, you look at it like the Apostle Paul told us to. It was for our instruction. We do that with our children. When we first start teaching our children biblical things, we start with the Old Testament stories. There's a reason for that. Because it builds a foundation for teaching them that they're sinners and that there is a Savior. There's a great shepherd, a redeemer. God delivers us from our bondage to sin and slavery. We build the foundation so that we can teach them the truth. That's the way the Bible is written. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, it tells us that the things were written in the past were for our example. And so when you look back at the nation of Israel, you see what happens when they disobey. God brings judgment. When they obey, God brings a blessing, for example. That's just one of them. But you see how God interacts with people. And you see it in a story form. Sometimes it's much easier to understand and comprehend when we see it in a story form. So the Old Testament, according to the New Testament, God wrote them both, is for our instruction, for examples to us. And so do not minimize the Old Testament. I mentioned dispensations, and I'm going to do this very quickly. Uh, I, you do not have to go exactly with this. This is an outline. I believe it's a good one, but it's, it's still an outline uh, of how these dispensations have changed. These different ways of God administering His sovereignty over people. First of all, there was innocence. Remember that one? It was before sin entered in the world. They were untested. No one had ever sinned. Everything was paradise. And that was different. You've never been there. You've never experienced that. The closest will be in the millennium, and then the perfect one, which can never fall, will be in heaven. But you've never experienced it at this point. Unless you're Adam or Eve, and I didn't see any of you here. You'd be kind of old if you were. But uh, anyway, then they sin. Remember, the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And you'll know good and evil. But what Satan didn't say is, you will choose evil. Now they have a conscience. And that conscience is now seared by sin. And it is what every child is born into today. None of us, at least I hope you didn't, didn't teach your children to lie, to steal, 
to hit their sister or their brother, to be deceiving. No, we're born that way because we now have a conscience and we have to make choices. Of course, only Christ can give us the power to make the right choices. And then eventually, man just continued to choose evil, choose evil, choose evil. And God said, that's it. I'm done. I'm bringing a great flood and I'm going to flood the whole world. We're going to look at that in the next few weeks as we continue through Genesis. And after the flood is over, he now says, and this is the original commandment given to human government. If somebody is a murderer, premeditatedly takes someone else's life, you are, as a human uh, society and a government, to take their life. Capital punishment was the original rule given to human government. But it was God using government to hold people accountable for their actions. And then there was promise. God chose a man, Abraham. He chose a people. He chose a nation ultimately to live, uh, to carry out his plan through. And right up near the beginning, it was told to Abraham, this is what I'm going to do through you. You are going to be a blessing to all the nations. And you know what it says in Genesis chapter 15? It says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. If you go through the New Testament, you know who they always go back to? Or almost, I should say, almost always go back to when they talk about faith? Abraham. Why? Because faith is not about law. It's not about some other system. It's about faith. It's about trusting God. No one has ever trusted Christ except by faith. No one has ever become a Christian except by faith. And the example always goes back to Abraham. And then there's the law, because man continued to sin. And it's kind of like this. Well, I didn't know that was wrong. Well, the law was added after God had rescued them from slavery. He added the law so they would know the sinfulness of sin. There would be no excuses for what is right and wrong, what God's standard was, what was expected. There would be no excuses for not understanding how holy and righteous and good and pure and perfect God was because he gave them a written standard. And it's recorded in a number of the Old Testament books starting in Exodus. And they lived under, we don't live under the law. Because here's the neat thing, and this is what we celebrate today, and you're going to see another illustration as I go through the sermon, is Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He didn't say the law is bad. He died and fulfilled the law, something no other person could ever do. He fulfilled the law, every jot and tittle of it, every little tiny bit of it. He fulfilled it all by his death on the cross, by his shed blood. That's the memorial. That's the symbol that we have before us today. The remembrance that is brought to us today. We're remembering what Christ has done. He paid the full penalty of the law. He carried out the full law. No one else could do that. So we don't live under the law. The law has been fulfilled. When you trust Christ, a fulfilled law is part of that life that he gives you. And we live not by the law, but by the Holy Spirit. 
But let's look at these books of the New Testament. And um, we're going to do them rather quickly. This is just to whet your appetite. I hope that when I'm done with this, you'll go, wow, I never really saw it that way. I didn't realize how much is in there. Hopefully it'll do that. So let's start with Genesis. This is going to be review because we've been looking at Genesis. But Genesis is the beginning of everything. The universe, the, all the rest of creation, all life, man, and then sin and the fall. And then, as I already mentioned, human government. What is the question that it answers? And that's the third column. What overall question should Genesis answer for us? Who am I responsible to? Who am I accountable to? God made you. God owns it all. You answer ultimately to him. That's what Genesis puts in front of us. If he made it, he owns it. You're part of it. You have to answer to him. That's Genesis. Exodus. It tells us the law, as I already mentioned, and redemption. The real question here comes, and you may fit in this one, is can God deliver us from the bondage of slavery? I don't know what your bondage is today. You may be an immoral person. You may have a horrible, bad habit. Could be alcohol, drugs, pornography. I don't care what it is. You may just be nasty, rotten person, and you're controlled by that. I don't care what it is. Can God deliver you from bondage to sin, from slavery to the old nature? The answer is absolutely yes. How do I know that? Because he took two or three million people and just extracted them from the most powerful nation at that time, Egypt. And yes, their tanks, they called them chariots back then, they were all drowned in the Red Sea. God miraculously brought them out. Does God still have the power to deliver us from the bondage of slavery? The answer is yes. And does he show us what sin looks like? Yes. That's the book of Exodus. Continuing on, the book of Numbers. Is God an orderly God? New Testament says the church, all things are be done decently and in order. Well, that's not a new concept because God made that concept very clear in the book of Numbers. We get the word arithmetic. From the word that is for the word numbers. Simply this. That God is a God who I can work with and serve with and walk with. And I skip one. I just realized that. Leviticus. How can sinful man fellowship and worship a perfectly holy God? Key phrase in Leviticus. Be holy as I am holy. Quoted by the Apostle Peter in the New Testament. How can God, who is way up here, perfect, and me, who's a sinner, how how can we have communion? How can we fellowship? How can we worship? It's only by God's way. The Old Testament way was through a system of sacrifices. Our perfect sacrifice has already come. That's Jesus Christ. He fulfilled all those Old Testament sacrifices, all those Old Testament offerings. They've all been fulfilled by Christ. But he makes it clear that God makes a way. And it's only God's way, not man's way. There are a lot of people, including Christians, who think I can do whatever I I can come to God any way I want. God says, no, you come my way. That's the book of Leviticus. Going on in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means second law. So why would God repeat himself? Because that's basically what he does. It's a repeat of much of Exodus. 
Because there was a new generation. See, the old generation had died in the wilderness. They all dropped dead. God said you can't go into the promised land until they all died. Now you have a whole new generation going into God's promised land. He has to remind them again of who He is and who they are. Folks, if you're raising children, your grandparent, you have a responsibility to the next generation to pass on what you have learned spiritually. That's what the book of Deuteronomy does for that next generation. It's a challenge to us. If you want to experience God's blessing, you need to know who God is and what He expects. Joshua. Wow, what a great book. You want to be encouraged? Read Joshua. Because now they not only go, they don't go across the Red Sea, they go across the Jordan River on dry land into the promised land. And God goes before them and takes on their enemies, clears the land for them. And they possess God's promises. A time, does God want to bring blessing? Does obedience bring blessing? It's an absolute illustration of that. Judges, can you be humanistic? Can you be secular? Can you thumb your nose at God and do whatever you want and expect that God is going to bring blessing? The answer is absolutely not. The key phrase in Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Who sounds like USA today. Actually sounds like the world today. Nothing new. And what was it? Judgment, 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 until someone would come along and have a revival. But God will not allow us to simply try to be self-sufficient and get away with it. So if you think that's true, read Judges. And then in the midst of it, there's a bright spot. There's Ruth. Is there hope when, when everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes? Is there any hope? The answer is, there is a kinsman redeemer. Someone of course, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who will come and die on our behalf. Someone who will do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Buy us. That's redeem. That's what redeem means. Buy us back. And that's exactly what Ruth portrays uh, in that book. First and second Samuel. Will God give you what you want? Even if it's not the right thing? The answer is, yeah, he will. Israel said, we want a king like all the rest of the nations. Give us a king. God said, okay, I'll give you a king. And if you want to know what politics and government is like and why taxes are oppressive, read First and Second Samuel. You'll find out, okay, you want a king like all the rest of the nations? I'll give you a king. And he said to Samuel, who was their spiritual leader at the time, he says, Samuel, don't worry about this. God said this to Samuel. Don't worry about it, Samuel. They haven't rejected you but they rejected me from being king over them. And I'll give them the king, and here's what's going to happen when I give them the king. The best of their young men and women are going to serve the king. The best and the first of their income is going to go in taxes. It's going to be oppressive. And that's exactly what human government does. They got exactly what they wanted. Instead of God ruling over them, they wanted human beings to rule. God said, okay, here it is. There is a bright spot there because in 2 Samuel, we find the family of David, who God says will have an eternal throne. And uh, by the way, the verses that are listed on the left-hand column, those are what I would consider to be the key verses of each of these books. They don't tell everything in the book, but a key verse to help you understand the whole book. 
The nation of Israel got their kings. It was divided. Idolatry came in. And again, just like in the book of Judges, God would judge them because they worshipped other gods. And they, they divided and they declined. And you can ask your question. If things are bad, is there no hope? The answer is, there is still hope. Why? Because there were men, Elijah and Elisha, who were in the midst of horrible things. They would face the king and the queen in the eye and say, you're wrong. There is a right way to do this. God's still in control. God is still working. And so, are there bright spots in the hard times? And the answer is, yes, God doesn't quit that easy. God doesn't give up. He perseveres when we would totally quit. Can I be encouraged, even though things look bad? The answer is, yes, I can. First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles uh, cover a lot of the same materials. And here's another overlap. And you say, why does God repeat himself? Well, there are a number of reasons. Why are there four Gospels, for example? They all talk about the same Jesus, but they see it from a different point of view. First and Second Chronicles do exactly the same thing. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings look at life from a political, governmental type view. Not First and Second Chronicles. They look at it from a spiritual point of view. And they point out some of the same things, but they point out additional things that deal with the spiritual life. Is God still working? Is revival still possible in the midst of everything else declining and going downhill? And the answer to that again is, yes, it is. And so when you study these things, you see that. And then there's Ezra. And if you'll remember, at the end of... Those six books, Israel had gotten to the point where they were living in so much idolatry that first the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom were taken into captivity by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And now they're in captivity. Is there any hope after God has really severely judged? The answer is, praise the Lord, there is. You may know that. You may have gotten yourself in really big trouble when you lost God's blessing. And when you got back in fellowship, God restored those blessings. That's Ezra and Nehemiah. How? Ezra, spiritual things first. He came back and built the temple. Now, there are no walls. The walls are broken down. The gates are burned. The houses are not there. It it had been ransacked. But first things first, spiritual things first. He came back and refurbished, rebuilt the temple, began the sacrifices again. And then 14 years or so later, Nehemiah is convicted that the walls are still down. The gates are still burned. And it's time To reclaim the promises of God. Because he had promised to Israel the land. The city of Jerusalem. And so he takes another group of people back with him. And now they begin to build the wall. And that's what we're studying on Sunday nights. They're rebuilding the wall. Because God indeed does bring blessing. And fulfills his promise promises even after judgment, even very hard judgment. 
You see, I never look at someone who has fallen into sin and go, okay, God's done with them, he'll never use them again. Never look at it that way at all. It's like, okay, if they're willing to deal with their sin, they're willing to deal with their disobedience and rebellion, God will restore their life. Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, I'm going to probably give some people heartburn when I do Esther because people look at Esther and they say, great big spiritual hero. Sorry, I don't see it that way. See, Esther and Mordecai, her family, were still back in the land of captivity. Many of the Jews had returned to Israel. They're still back there. God's not even mentioned in the book. Here's the cool thing about Ruth. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Esther. Esther, not Ruth. Esther is that God is still working even though they had not returned to the place of God's blessing. He's still working. His name's not even mentioned, but he's working behind the scenes. And let's not fool ourselves. Esther was part of a harem. And if you read the book, you'll find out she did some pretty things that we go, that's not moral. But here's what I do know. That in spite of what was going on, God didn't go out of business. God is still faithful, period. And yes, he is even able to accomplish his glory and his purposes. He's even able to use people in spite of themselves to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And that's what he does through Esther and, and the rest of her family. Does, and in this case, does God forsake his unfaithful people? The answer is no, he does not. He continues to work. Remember what I said? Why do we look at the Old Testament? Because it's an example to us. It's to encourage us, to bring us perseverance, to give us hope. And that's what we do. But as we look at the Old Testament, you notice a few pictures. Sin. Sin required a payment, a blood payment. In the Old Testament, under the law, it was sacrifices of animals. But the perfect Lamb of God represented by the body, by, by the, the elements before us. But the body and blood of Christ is the perfect fulfillment of all the Old Testament requirements. Dealing with all the Old Testament sins that were enumerated under the law. He died and paid the price for all of them. And if you've trusted Christ, the whole price is paid. Redemption is here. If you've not trusted Christ, this, you don't even understand this. Because Christ died for your sins. And if you've never trusted Jesus Christ and asked Him to forgive you for your sins, you don't understand the full significance of the Lord's Supper. See, because the Lord's Supper says that we proclaim His death until He comes. He says we're to examine our lives to make sure we're living worthy of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So examine your life. Have you trusted Christ? If you haven't, communion is not for you. You need to trust Christ. But if you've trusted Christ and you're not living in fellowship with the Lord, or you're at odds with those around you, you haven't examined your life either. Simply put this way is if you're claiming that Christ has forgiven your sins and given you new life, but you're living like you used to live, you're not living in a worthy manner. 
And 1 Corinthians chapter 11 makes it very clear. If we partake of the Lord's Supper and we're not living in a worthy manner, we're eating and drinking judgment unto ourselves. Now, we don't go around and say, I know what you're doing, so you can't take me. We don't do that at all. This is a personal thing between you and God. Every time we have communion, there are people that at this, at this church, and I, I am thrilled that that happens. I'm not thrilled that they need to do that, but I'm thrilled that people go, no, I'm not right with God. I'm not right with my wife, my co-workers, whatever, whoever it is, my siblings, whatever. And, and I just can't take communion because I would be eating and drinking judgment to myself. Please, we're, gonna have, we're just going to bow our heads here in a moment as the men will be coming forward. And examine your life. And if you know you're not in fellowship, don't participate. Nobody's going to judge you, but you need to judge yourself.